Hello everyone, and welcome to What Would the Smart Party Do, the UK's premier RPG podcast and the favourite talk RPG podcast of 2020, according to AM World. We've not got much of that left, Baz, but we are still the favourite for now. <laughs> yeah, we've got about another two weeks, haven't we, as the, before we get relegated to be the premier in of UK role-playing podcasts. Oh, well, at least we're not travel lunch. That's something. <laughs> yes. Hello, guys. How's things? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. We are we are getting close to the end of the year, so we might squeeze in an end of the year special at some point. But we've got other stuff to talk about tonight. And I think really we should talk about subsystems. We should talk about things that are extras. Quite often people talk about, I don't know, something like BRP or something and say, Oh, it's just rolling percentiles. Or Savage Rails, we just roll you know, each of the different dice types. But actually, lots of games have different things that make them interesting. And if you don't get into all the mechanics and the extra bits and pieces, the bells and whistles, the funky bits, then games can be quite boring, Ooh, relatively speaking. Spicy. Hashtag hot take. That's what the kids are doing these days, isn't it? Plus you get them writing in. Writing. <laughs> On their typewriters. Yes, it should do. That's what the kids do. No, I know what you mean. I, I, it, well, this won't come as any surprise, will it? I concur. I quite like a subsystem. In fact, I love a subsystem. Who am I kidding? Because I quite <laughs> like a system. So, you know, more of <laughs> more system in the system, for me, is not a terrible idea. Uh, but I, I, we're probably going to have to play the definition game a little bit then, aren't we, if we're mm. talking about subsystems? Because in my head, um, I think I first encountered the term subsystems when talking about advanced Dungeons & Dragons specifically AD&D so that is obviously going back about as far as you can go um, so it might mean different things to different people at this stage so so where are you coming from with your subsystems chit chat tonight mate yeah I think you're right with that because you could even go back further to early editions of D&D and say well a thief had percentage chances to do stuff when other classes didn't have yeah. that so in a way the thief skills in the very earliest D&D was a subsystem because it was like a little extra thing they could do that nobody else could mm. But for the purposes of this discussion, I guess I'm talking about those extra chunk of rules that possibly sit outside the core mechanic if, as I've sort of like alluded to there, BRPs generally you roll percentile dice and you try and get equal to or under than your skill level or your characteristic times five or whatever it might be. That's that's the, the game, that's the system as a lot of people would see it. But if you want to have a chase, for example, the new Call of Cthulhu 7th edition rules have chase mechanics. So that's a subsystem because it's, it's something else that you break out to do a thing. It's normally a bit of extra uh, words and mechanics to assist you in getting a particular type of thing or feel to the table. It might be a social encounter mechanic rather than just really persuade. You might have something more than that to do. It could be a bit of base building. It could be how you gather clues. It could be a bunch, a bunch of other things. Uh, but yeah, when we talk subsystems tonight, I think what I'm talking about is like those extra bolt-ons, bits, modular pieces, whatever they might be you get with games that uh, enhance certain elements of play or give you extra options. Cool, right. I'm with you now. Because I'm old enough in the... Uh, well, I'm just old enough in the hobby, I suppose, to remember when games didn't always have core rulebook written on the front. That's right, they just yeah. used to have rulebook, didn't they? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I don't know where the origin of the word core came from. I have a feeling, as usual, it might be a D&D &D thing. It might have been with D&D &D 3, maybe even later than that. I think it's a 21st century invention where there's a core mechanic, but it also it gets used to mean these are the basics. Rule. By basics, sometimes they're not very basic at all, but these are the, the rules that everybody will use in almost every game before we start looking at other things and they, they tend to come out in different books these days hmm. but prior to the idea of a core mechanic which is now ubiquitous you, you can't you can't get a game without that written in there somewhere it's just become normal language hasn't it prior to that subsystems existed within what would now be called a core rulebook and I think your Chaosium are probably the the, the leaders in that with the idea of spot rules which I remember from the original Call of Cthulhu yeah. boxes and Stormbringers and Elrics and all of those things they were always very very clear about here's what goes on in the main game and you can just play with that forever if you want to and here's some options and it would usually be for stuff like I don't know drowning for example a drowning mm -hmm. spot rule would be there wouldn't it and that would be maybe not even necessarily a different system 
but it would be something that was seen as something you can fold into your game if you want to or not. Yeah, and an interesting one's always grappling, which mm. even if it wasn't officially a subsystem or an extra bit, that entry in your skill section of your book, the Aretha, was obviously a lot bigger than any other entry, whether it was about climbing, mm. swimming, athletics, disarming a bomb, whatever it might be, grappling was always massive and always took far more roles than anything else did. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. There's there's bits still in books to these days where uh, I have to go and look it up. Um, and often that's in uh, grappling, as you say. Healing is another one. Mm-hmm. If there's a game with a medicine skill or something a lot like that, that's sometimes where the healing rules are kept. And the healing rules are often in the combat section as well. And there's often a bit of flick-flacking backwards and forwards to try and figure out what's going on with those things. Or it yeah. might be recovering sanity or whatever. But those little healing subsystems seem to be almost an adjunct to the combat rules, but generally spread across other things and can even end up in the equipment chapter at times, can't they? Yes, yeah. Someone was asking on Twitter recently, actually, what what do you have on a DM screen or a GM screen? Yeah. And that you know generated a variety of answers. But one of the things that people mentioned was like uh, the healing rules. Yeah, and I think that's quite telling because they weren't, you know, they're not necessarily right there where you need them. No. Almost like you're saying, it should arguably be right in the middle of the combat chapter because mm. the, the thing you want to do after you've finished hitting things with swords is <laughs> fixing up the holes made by the stores that've just been hitting people. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, those those are often little subsystems, aren't they? Because um, if you think about a classic game with a core mechanic now, a D20 immediately springs to mind for obvious reasons I suppose um, you've got the, you know when it comes to healing you're not you're not actually rolling d20s for that at all so there's still there's still very much a subsystem in that game in modern D&D yeah hit point recovery the rest of it that little section is definitely a subsystem whereas back in the day when we were thinking about subsystems what, again what would have immediately sprung to mind would have been an encumbrance system for example Mm-hmm. That that was that was what I would think of as subsystem, or as you say, thieves skills. So it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a moving target. This one, isn't it? Subsystems are they there? Are they not there? Are there any games that don't have them? I, I can think of a couple, perhaps, where it is there is simply a core mechanic that's used for everything, no matter what. Uh, whether it's a social encounter, whether it's a stealth encounter, whether it's just chit chatting or hitting people with swords. Um, but they seem to be down the in the end of the market. I think. What do you reckon? Yeah, yeah, and and there's a bit of a tension in there because, like, I quite like things to be internally consistent. Mm. So if you've got a system that works for everything, which it might be your core system, shall we call it? That that's quite cool. I'm normally into that uh, rather than having lots of fanning about and extra spot rules or things that work differently in some circumstances but not others for no apparent reason. Yeah. Um, however, I think as I was sort of trying to define at the start, having subsystems which do a job like um, when you kind of break into a different mode mm. that's the kind of stuff that I quite like and I think there's been some useful kind of like progress in that way so there shouldn't be there shouldn't be like grappling's one that like people come back to all the time isn't it grappling encumbrance these old things that had yeah. extra bits of rules around that just made them hard work mm. and you know you see it in movies and films and all kinds of stuff where like people get grappled or dragged somewhere or uh, and it seems exciting and it, it just doesn't seem to come across that way when someone applies RPG rules to it. So the sort of the systems, subsystems, what I'm what I'm looking for, where I'm perhaps I'll give some examples of ones that I think are cool, are things that then add value and not when someone says, "Oh, can I just grab the bad guy instead of stab him?" and everybody groans because they know they've got to look the table up and it's going to be half a page of rules to wear through. Yes. What you want the kind of thing to do is like, can I grab him? And he goes, oh, cool. We get to use the kidnapping people rules, whatever it might be. <laughs> and a little chunky bit of extra you can do that then will assist and make it feel like you are trying to like grab and wrestle someone. Yeah, why is grappling always a subsystem? Because it's always a suboptimal move, isn't it? Tends In to any be. Case, you know, generally speaking, you seem to impose the you cannot move condition on your opponent. Well, you know, sticking a sword through their eye will also do that, given enough time. Yeah. It, 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 it should just... be something that's, that's exciting and cinematic and risky because you want to be like those scenes in the James Bond films, don't you, as, as you allude to, where the baddies like wrap their, their tie around James's neck and has got him down on the ground and they're trying that's to right, heave yeah. his head off. And, <laughs> um, and that, that should be a really cool scene. But you try and replicate that or emulate that in many grappling subsystems 
and it just it just means you're just sort of like rolling around with each other ineffectually and you're waiting for your mates to come and stab the person who's grapplingly that it doesn't feel right so why on earth should it be a subsystem in the first place i don't know quite why they went in that direction so many times in so many books it's not a one-off is it it's across loads no. of them and i think it's just that replication error where it was included in the earliest editions of D and got therefore, copied across yeah, yeah. <laughs> so everybody puts drowning rules and things yeah or whatever yeah. else because they seem to be that um, you know, just set of things you have in role playing books. Like a, my favorite example is Orpheus, a, a mm-hmm. game where you ultimately all end playing ghosts, but you've got like being electrified rules and drowning rules and stuff. It's like I'm Sorry. a freaking ghost. Why are these in there? I don't. I think they're just in there because they're always in role playing books and, and they just got copied in with everything else. I think they even even in that game, I think they have encumbrance, which is weird because you can't carry anything. But um, <laughs> because encumbrance is the other classic, isn't it? Is there yeah. in so many games, and and to this day, if I want to get a row going on social media, all I have to do is post about encumbrance and say like, what do you like about it? What don't you like? It's all a nonsense, really, isn't it? It's mm. never, tra- it's never, ever, ever in any role playing game been dramatically uh, the right time to get any kind of encumbrance rule brought into the game, let alone a subsystem for it. And yet, in movies, I love those scenes where, like, it's a Vietnam movie and someone's trying to carry their fallen comrade across their shoulders to get to the Huey, which is going to take off. You know, yeah. that's that sort of stuff seems to matter. Um, but even in those games, you know, I, I, that those probably wouldn't use a subsystem for it. Don't need one. So you know, there's there's certainly some subsystems which, despite I think I like them, those ones are vestigial. They're just mm. like you know, they're like the feet on a whale. They're kind of deep within the bone structure, but they really haven't been needed for a long time. <laughs> yeah, you can take my pancreas. <laughs> but you cannot take my freedom. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, to, to hammer the point home, I think what, what I want to look for here is stuff that's in games that, that performs our function, that's been deliberately included yes. to do a thing. Yeah, uh, and not just there because we think you have to have it in because it's a role playing game and you can do anything. So we best try and cover off all the bases. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's start with one from Savage Worlds, and there's a few in there, so I might keep coming back to this this particular game. There are a game. few, aren't there? It's it's a good book for, to to look at for that because it's a section, isn't there? There's tight, lots of little subsections, and in, within each is its own subsystem. Yeah, that's right, and they're kind of there as tools. So you pick them and use them as you want, or discard them. And uh, one of them is dramatic tasks. So the idea behind that is something's going to happen, and I think that's that's the thing with we talk about like you know the Bond villain and maybe being dangled off the edge of a bridge or something like that. That's what you need in your grappling situation. Is like there has to be an end to it, uh, preferably a terminal, and <laughs> like that someone's <laughs> going to die or something bad's going to happen. Because uh, otherwise, regular grappling in RPGs tends to be. You not only impose the immobilized condition on your opponent, but on yourself as well, because you can't do anything mm. but sit, sit there and hold them. Well, you're just taking two characters out of the game to do nothing, so that's that's pretty dull. So it's got to be uh, by this time the opponent's choked out, or if he keeps hold of you, you can't get to the off switch for the big doomsday device. So you need to do something about that. Uh, and essentially, how it works is you get three rounds normally. You have to accumulate a number of successes or raises because the dice explode in Savage World. And if you do that within the allotted time, then hooray, you've won. And if you have a, then the bad thing happens. And cards are used for initiative in Savage Worlds. And as you deal in action cards every round, if a club comes up, there's a complication. So you get to narrate a cool thing that happens that complicates it further. And it makes it a bit more difficult for you to do your thing that round. And that's all cool. So it's got an end. It's got a limited time it'll run for. You know kind of what target you're aiming for. And you set a stake for the end of that. So it's not just a one and done like a lot of skill rolls are which most of the adventure might be, for example. It's, uh, we're going to have to take some time at this. We get several bites of the cherry. Uh, little bits of complication can come up, and we know what the stake is at the end, so that makes it exciting. And it can still get a little bit stayed if people just play it as let's roll three times and see if we've got the right number of successes. Yeah. What you need to do with that, as you do with any role-playing game or any dice rolls you're making, is put some words around it. How is this exciting? What does it look like in the fiction of the game? Tell other people what's the if you're not quite getting the number of successes you wanted how how are things escalating how does it look more dangerous does the timer on the bomb start ticking down even faster or you know something like that so mm. um, that's my first example I think is uh, dramatic tasks and, and why they're dramatic is big stake time limit complications and I think they're good elements to like really put the focus on something that's happening in your game 
Cool. So they, they put me in mind of skill challenges, which has now become a term that's kind of grown outside of the game that it came from, which was 4th edition D&D. Mm-hmm. So one whole edition ago. And, and it was the Marmite edition, to put it mildly. So the one that everyone loved or hated. And skill challenges were a big part of the Marmite-ness of D&D 4E. And they're very similar to the structure that you've just outlined, Gaz, as, as I'm sure many people will know, because you'll have seen this in so many other games by now. So the idea in a D&D skill challenge would be for one of those extended tasks. So it's not just a question of, like, do you get through the lock on the door or not? But it might be, I don't know, crossing some whitewater rapids, or it may be advent- uh, it may be trekking across a uh, long journey. So very often they were kind of biggish tasks like that, or it could be convincing someone... Uh, a noble to send their caravans in a different direction. So it could be an extended argument. And the idea would be that you would have to accumulate a number of successes with your skill rolls around the party before you accumulate a number of failures. And I think it's fair to say that it's a really noble idea. And unfortunately, or fortunately, because there's hundreds of thousands of D&D players, as soon as the books were released, they went and, they went and used it a lot. <laughs> and... <laughs> and that meant that they immediately started finding problems with the underlying maths. Um, and it turned out these things were either ridiculously easy or impossible or very unwieldy. And the advice for using them it probably was a little bit rushed at the end. I have just one of those feelings the chapter didn't quite get as many editing passes as it needs. And that's an easy thing to say. But it, it happened to be one of the things that the fans of the game, even the fans of the game, picked up on quite quickly. Is it didn't quite work. But it was a great notion. And I think it's actually... That's you know that you can see the strands from that idea in so many of the games that have since come along, and our mate Guy t- puts a skill challenge in every game, whether it's D and D or not, doesn't he? It's like he loves his, it. his signature move, mm-hmm. and it, and it does work. I think the thing that stopped it working, as again you alluded to, Gaz, is if all people are going to do is white room it and just roll d twenties, add a number from their Excel spreadsheet, and and put no flavour, no no trappings into it at all, not try to make it part of the conversation that's happening about the fiction in the world, then of course it's going to come across as a bit dry because it's just supposed to be a method for conveying you through something that otherwise would be quite tedious to play out round by round. Yeah. So it's obviously a shortcut, and any shortcut means that you have to make some compromises along the way. Mm-hmm. So you know the mechanical heft of these things can still be tested, and I still think there's a lot to be done with skill challenges in almost every game. And you know, props to D and D four E for giving it a go, especially in such a game. Yeah, but you know, maybe didn't land perfectly well that time. And unfortunately, I think fifth edition has shied away from it because mm. of that, which is a shame. Yeah, yeah, and I think that it suffered a little bit from having that like get this many successes before you get this many fails or a similar mm. kind of thing. I can't remember exactly how in fourth edition it worked, but that's not really up in the ante or making a big stake about it, is it? It's just kind no. of like. It does feel a little bit rolling dice and, and seeing whether you get more pluses than minuses. So I think it possibly needs a little bit more than that. Something that is very similar, but um, moved on from, I think they like social encounters in Savage Worlds. They were similarly named, I think it was Encounters in the original The One Ring, and now they're called Councils, I believe. But mm. that's one where you're doing a talking encounter with someone, but you make several rolls, and then depending on your accumulated successes, there's a little table for how much the the, the person's going to help you or is on your mm-hmm. side and I think that's again another way of kind of making it more interesting so instead of just making three persuade rolls or whatever it might be to try and get them on board you kind of look at how many of those succeeded or how many raises you get in Savage Worlds or extra successes in other games and if you get like loads then they're like your best friend forever and they'll give you all these extra cool things and if you just about scrape it, then they'll begrudgingly agree to help you, but it's going to cost you later and that kind of stuff. And having a range of outcomes. Uh, and I think that's what, when you're making more than one roll, the kind of thing you need. There needs to be some kind of granularity to it. There needs to be more at stake, either something really big at stake or you know, a variety of outcomes that then make, make you interested in, in every roll and every round. Yeah. Yeah, don't disagree, mate. There's loads of design space to be had in that area between it's not worth rolling for or let's roll for it and it, we, you're either going to succeed or fail mm-hmm. and so many games make um, make that their mission almost don't they which which takes me actually to well, I suppose my current favourite subsystem and it's quite a broad category um, but the one I think of immediately is stuff like Forged in the Dark games which would be all of the downtime stuff that they do 
Yes. So that's that's a subsystem that is broadly applicable across so many games. I don't really like the phrase downtime, but we all know what it means. It's the stuff that isn't like the main event. It's the stuff your characters are doing when they're not like, you know, on deck, I suppose. But it could be still so satisfying. And I think back in the day, those kind of activities were generally speaking hand waved away, maybe didn't have any dice to roll, no real game element to it. Uh, it was it was strictly background. Um, and then some other games thought, well, let's see if we could bring it to the fore. And I'm thinking of games like Pathfinder, for example, where they just give you so many subsystems for crafting that arguably some people found that more fun than the main game itself and were just <laughs> quite happy to just be making rings of invisibility and like making a trading game out of it. Yeah. So what I like about the Forged in the Dark approach, and it's been picked up by loads of other games as well, like the, the new Warhammer has endeavours, I think they call them. Yeah. Um, and essentially you can go and get a job, you can be working on a long-term project, it could just be your healing subsystem. It could be all the things you're doing when you're not on mission. But there's a kind of neat little mechanics in there about you do roll some dice, you do check some boxes, some stuff does happen, and you don't have unlimited resources to do all of these things. But without getting it so bogged down that you've got to go around your table to your four or five players and spend half an hour with each one moving the spotlight around right. as they do nickel and dime shopping, for example. Mm. So. I like those kind of subsystems where they can shortcut those scenes, but without hand waving them completely out of the game. They're still they're still very much a part of the overall experience. Yeah, no, I, t- I totally agree. Yeah, and uh, what does that look like? Is the bit that makes it like as you were saying before with the skill challenges. Like if people just roll to indulge their vice or whatever it is, mm. and don't tell anybody what they're doing, just say, I'm just indulging my vice and press a button. That's not much fun. But equally, you don't want to spend half an hour hearing about their night out that their character has around the dark side. <laughs> like you should. So um, yeah, it's finding that sweet spot, isn't it? And I find with the the downtime type activities, what it does as well is give the characters a little bit more depth and a bit more. Like it's that off screen stuff, as you mentioned, but like you don't see it in normal role playing games. Quite often, mm-hmm. people sit down to play D anD D or whatever it is, and it's always in the middle of a dungeon or an adventure or an airship or something. And like, what, what's your character like when they're not doing that? Because there must be loads of time that we don't necessarily spend time on in the movie that has our games, where they're doing things. Mm-hmm. So how do you give them a bit of personality and that, that quick downtime bit, that extra bit of admin at the end? It gives you that extra depth for the character as well, or the opportunity to give them as well. Yeah. And it feels like an extra bit of a reward as well, doesn't it? You know, you know I've got, you know, I've got a couple of downtime actions at the end, what do I want to spend them on? Mm. And it might be healing, but it could even be working on a project, like you say, or getting a new asset, or doing something else uh, and then when you turn the next week and you've got this new whatever it is well oil powered pistol or something because you've been working on it for a couple of weeks that feels like you've invested it with it as well as a character so when you finally get it as a player you feel like you've achieved something it feels like it was worth having rather than just looking in a list of equipment in the character in the book rather than spending some girl pieces it, it feels like you've invested in it and you deserve it because you've, it's taking you a little bit of time mm-hmm. to get there yeah, it's, uh, it's clever when they do it really well. Yeah, and some games do it better than others, but it's like the idea of the lonely fun that you could always have in games between sessions, but bringing that lonely fun into the session so you do it with everybody else around the table with you at the same time. Okay. And it is slightly meta, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but nowhere near as, as, as meta as uh, between this session and next, make sure you all level up, get your new hit points, get your feats, spend your skills, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, that's, you know, a subsystem in itself, isn't it? But it's totally outside of the fiction, usually. So I like that it brings things like that back into the game where it matters, but not so much that it overshadows the main point of whatever it is you're getting together to do that night. Exactly, yeah. And, and in a way, it reminds me of early Ringquest, Ringquest 2. Hmm. Probably request one. I don't know. I can't quite remember that far back. But um, you you could spend money on training, and it takes so many weeks. You could actually do like you know athletics or gymnastic training, or mm. go and find a swordmaster and learn to. And you could spend some money getting trained up, and it take a number of weeks. So that was something that existed, you know, in the eighties for a particular small group of games, and then just seemed to get discarded from a lot of games, and we've forgotten about it. So it feels almost like calling back to those glory days of the eighties as well, remembering something we did include in our games originally. We just need to forget. 
Yeah, there's, I think there's a good reason why that got forgotten. I mean, my yeah, first comment yeah. was about AD and D, wasn't it? And that had all of that too. It really you could you could go and do some spying, for example, on an enemy encampment. And and Guy Gax used to say, didn't he? You know, every good campaign needs a really good time management system. So you had to like buy a calendar <laughs> so you could tick off your six and a half weeks in the wilderness as you're looking at the orcs as they're moving across the mountains. And uh, and. <laughs> And there would have been, there really would have been, uh, how many copper it cost you to eat that rabbit every day, and all of the other things you had to do, and and that looked great as as I'm skimming through my dungeon master's guide, age twelve, you know, back in the very early eighties, I'm thinking, oh, this looks so real, you know, this is like a whole breathing world. I've got the instruction manual for the universe here, um, but you soon realise, and I soon realised even at that tender age that actually that's like mortifyingly dull for everybody else, isn't it? I mean, never mind. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your character. What about tell me about the boring bits of your character at length? No thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a, that's a fair point. Training montages, Feng Shui too solved it. <laughs> <laughs> well, montage is is another good one, isn't it? It's kind of a subsystem, yeah. but um, I'm specifically thinking of Thirteenth Age there, where um, you have a journey somewhere, but you want it to be interesting. So you just get one person to tell you how they overcome a challenge. And you don't have to make skill rolls. You just say, uh, you reach an icy waterfall. How do you get past it? And then that person describes what the next challenge is that your party faced on this massive journey they did. And they go, oh, reach the Misty Mountains. And then the other one says, how do you get through that? And it's like, oh, well, you're in Khazad-Dum, but a Balrog turns up. How do you get past that? And it chains round. So everybody gets to describe something cool. But and the reason I like that mechanic is, one, it saves just going... Oh, you get there, and nothing happened on your journey. It saves going through day by day, eating rations and catching rabbits, and how many miles have you travelled in what conditions and with what weather, and that kind of stuff. And gives you a bit of flavour as well. It gets somebody, uh, the opportunity to say something cool without having to worry about the numbers that are in their character sheet. And they can just say something that happened that was interesting and how their character shined, or how somebody else's character did better, or whatever it might be. So yeah, montage is another good one there where it's, it's doing a job. It's, it's making that journey bit that you quite have to do in role games interesting but as you say without having to spend too much time on it I'll get bogged down in details now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push my glasses up my nose here with my finger and say well actually so there's a bit of pedantry here which I just love to trot out I won't take long over it that montage rule is not in the 13th age book um, and by now I think everyone thinks it is uh, but it's not. It's never in the core book. It was like a little optional rule in the GM screen, which came some time later. But it's now so ubiquitous that that it, you know, if they ever printed another edition of the Thirteenth Age, they'd have to put it in there because everybody uses it, and it's bled into loads of games now because it's so good. Yeah. Um, and I think it was actually just sort of like you know a bit of GM advice, like you know here's a cool thing you could do. And like much of Thirteenth Age, very modular, and no reason why you couldn't port that into any game. Mm-hmm. That, that montage system along with the other subsystems in 13th age like icons like escalation dice like a bunch of other stuff that they do really really well it's all really really portable so you know you can snap that subsystem off and then reattach it to your game of Deadlands or Call of Cthulhu or whatever it is you're playing yeah sure I mean obviously I meant the 13th age family of games rather than the core rulebook <laughs> <laughs> all our listeners will understand that I'm sure yes I'm sure so Another idea that's come up quite recently, I, you can you can get your pedants out again, again if, I, if I put this in the wrong place. It's never far away. I've got it uh, right at hand. Don't worry. <laughs> that's a whole hat stand you've got there. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> I'm thinking of uh, base building rules now. And the, and the one I think that, that's popularised it really is the Mutant Year Zero games yeah. from Free League. Although it's appeared in various guises uh, around the world in various games, I think the one that's really, it's really stuck with is free league stuff so mm. things like Mutant Year Zero which is uh, set in a post-apocalyptic wilderness and it's a real driver for the game to have a base that your party are living and you have to go out and explore the world and try and find supplies and bring them back and, and how do you keep your little settlement going and surviving and it's a driver for drama, it's a driver for reasons to go out and do things and come back with resources or what you might have to do for the interfactional fighting within the place you've got uh, but it, it really sort of like uh, bases for what the better for grounds your players in something, and gives the player characters something to to fight for and be interested in, and you can kind of level it up, which is cool. And they've even included that in things like uh, Vesson, 
the Nordic Harrogen they've got where you start off with keys to a castle that's the first thing that happens before you've even gone on your first adventure and there's all these unknown rules uh, rules? rooms even and as you level up as characters and get experience your castle gets XP and you get to spend it on finding rooms like a shooting gallery or something like that or maybe a, a butterfly house or something and all those things will give you extra points when you're playing the game to, to do cool stuff uh, but it's just another way of uh, leveling up getting more cool things for, for doing what you're doing anyway in your games and crucially because it's a shared resource uh, I think it, it helps bring the players together as well and, and the player characters because they've got something they're all investing in mm. and it's not like everybody's got a separate home to go to or anything like that there's just like one shared thing and it becomes um, almost like a character of its own yeah I'm I'm a really big fan of Mutant Year Zero and a lot of the freely games as you suggest guys, and uh, Forbidden Lands would be another example uh, they put a lot of effort into the whole domain management aspect of that kind of old school fantasy system um, with Mutant Year Zero it's, it's, if it is a subsystem it's a really big one in the time that I've played Mutant Year Zero and I've really enjoyed it you've got the whole going out of your arc and going exploring and scouting and you know, lead the path and trying to find stuff your kind of traditional adventuring uh, activity and then you've got all the stuff back at base and it's almost like both of them are really good but they can't they, they, they have to exist you know one after the other it's very difficult to do them simultaneously mm-hmm. and, we, and we've had sessions where we never left the base because the base building element of it or the activities around base were loads of fun and then we've had you know weeks go by where we haven't even seen our base so it feels like you can only play half the game at a time because as a subsystem it's really juicy and there's yeah. loads to do and I reckon it would be the same with Forbidden Lands too although ostensibly it's a game about uh, hex crawling and exploration it's also a game about like you know digging moats and putting poor <laughs> colours in your castle and those two are almost at odds with each other aren't they so it, yeah. it, they're kind of weirdly balanced I think Vason is a bit more integrated from what you've told me yeah it's and it is quite light touch in Vason but yeah and, and Forbidden Lands I do like the idea that you might you get to a point where you've got to hire people to look after your castle because otherwise people might nick it when you're not there (laughs) (laughs) and you're not going to be there because you're off battling the dark lord over some mountain range and I guess it's not it's not too different than like having a spaceship in Traveller or something like that but it's just got the extra there's extra investment in it it's it's, you know I guess early days traveller when you did have a spaceship and a a bajillion credit loan because that's the only way you could afford to have one um, although there were stats for your ship it didn't feel didn't feel like it was doing a lot for you it was just a set of numbers really whereas if you look at something like the Forge in the Dark games like you say uh, it'll have its own crew sheet it'll have a, you know it does you get extra bonuses for certain things or the resources you can spend and and that leads us back into kind of like having a crew sheet in Blades in the Dark for example where yeah. that represents your gang that you've got and depending on options you pick or how it levels up your characters then get bonuses to do things or uh, extra resources to recover from this that and the other Yeah. so, so it's, it's an extra element of um, I think those sort of things have always been there like I, I remember Companion D&D you kind of all got a castle at one point and you had a big hex grid map where you all had a little prince them or five them or whatever but there weren't really any, any rules around that on mechanical support uh, and it's having those extra bits, and they don't. They only need to be bits. They don't need to be like massive game-changing things. But just getting extra Brucey bonuses, or extra bits of flavour, or styles of doing things, I think really just add to the rich tapestry of your game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I feel like a bit of a heel, sort of criticising, you know, games like Traveller, which are <laughs> which are now more than forty years old, or right at the leading edge of RPG design when they came out. But I, I, I too remember maintaining a ship, uh, plotting out star systems, subsystems, subsectors, sorry, um, and all of that kind of like running a business stuff. Yeah. And again, again, being kind of like lured into it by the by the prospect of the books made it look like a whole bunch of fun. And to an extent, it is. But it's fun that you can only have on your own, <laughs> or you have to be the GM. It's it's like game prep rather than. A subsystem that really can help bring everybody else's game to life yeah. and, it, it, and if games have done nothing else in the past 40 years they have moved into what can we do to make the experience at the table something that everybody can benefit from we, we may have to ask everybody to chip in a bit more 
maybe mentally than they used to so mm. everybody's a player don't stick it all on the GM shoulders and bring some of that stuff that back in the day GM did you know um, on weeknights in preparation for the weekend bring that into the weekend game session somehow by making it just fit in a lot more and add to everyone's enjoyment uh, and that's been a big move in game design I think over the years and I think it's better for it I think so yeah no absolutely uh, and I think we're sort of like we're striking a theme aren't we across all of these things I mentioned is that we seem to quite like the subsistence but they can't be they can't be too onerous no is one thing and they have to add something is another mm-hmm. and um, they, they seem to mostly try and do a lot for very little investment I think that's the idea is you're getting more out of them than the effort you put in is the kind of like barometer we're using for like do we like these yeah I think so yeah definitely because if it if it's if it brings too much into the game, then it's not really a subsystem, and should maybe just be the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it doesn't always work, does it? And I think you know my my personal white whale that I'm always looking for is the is the is the good chase system. Mm-hmm. Often, again, often a subsystem, and like with vehicular combat in, Oof, in a lot of other games, yeah. it's you, immediately you, yeah you <laughs> you lose the will a little bit, don't you? If you turn to a chapter. You know all those Shadowrun games that had um, anything to do with rigging in them or running in the Matrix, mm-hmm. any of those things, absolute classic subsystem territory, and absolutely poorly served for many many years across many many games. Yeah, uh, still waiting for the decent chase rules to come out, and I think some have got very very close indeed. You mentioned seven seventh edition Call of Cthulhu. I think. Um, I think uh, Paul and Mike did a really, really good job on that in a game where I wasn't expecting it to happen at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think also that they would agree that it's, it's it's not perfect because that's been so hard to get, hasn't it? A yeah. perfect chase system. Yes, and I'm not sure whether part of that is because of the hangover of what people think they have to have in them, yeah. uh, as we were talking about. So uh, you've immediately got to talk about, is it a foot chase or is someone in a car? And then some systems even go like, oh, what if they're an airplane or a night gaunt or something? <laughs> uh, that that puts it at different scales. Uh, as soon as you get into flying, you got about like moving in three different directions and relative speeds and uh, speed and stuff. Uh, it could get into a whole mess. And I think it needs to you need to try and boil it down for whoever it is who's going to write this perfect system. If we don't do that, but boil it down to the cool stuff and just working out. Like you know, can can everybody else lean out of the car and shoot as well while you're driving? What does the driver do? How's that interesting? Uh, I think what you really need for these kind of things is just like, what are the cool bits that the players are doing at the table? And, and instead of thinking of trying to emulate what happens in a chase or what could happen in a chase, try and get to what cool things a player's going to do. Because as you say, that that's how we avoid the lonely fun thing or the what looks good on paper but isn't going to practice. It's like how's this going to be interesting, and there are chase rules in Savage Worlds, for example. What I'd be more tempted to do is run it as a dramatic task mm. so that we know that after three rounds this chase is going to be over one way or the other. Uh, do you get away or do they catch you or whatever can be the ultimate stake uh, and then there can be complications and other things that happen along the way. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think chase is another one that, that suffers like grappling from people trying to emulate what they think would happen in real life. Rather than thinking of what, how's the fiction going to be cool? And I think it lands wrong a lot of the time. Um, uh, our, our mate Matt is is currently working up a system. He won't mind me saying, and it's got loads of potential in it. But you know, he's he's really trying hard to build a good movie chase system for cars and motorbikes, like your big dumb eighties action films. It's one of his favourite things to do. And he, he says he's yet to find a game that really delivers that kind of stuff. So he's scouting about looking for things. And whereas I think you or I, guess would probably go and look for our role-playing game collection, I think Matt quite rightly is looking through his DVD collection. And yes. he's, he's taking notes. He's watching Bad Boys and Lethal Weapon 2 and, and all of those great things. And you know he's now writing up designs for what happens when a car rubs along a chain-link fence. And, <laughs> and I'm grateful that he's not like assigning it a toughness and yeah. a hit point threshold and a fragility factor because that's <laughs> that's not that's not the point at all is it and yeah. all of those things that I've just made up off the top of my head you can kind of see them in so many books can't you yeah. so, oh man is there a difference between hitting something head on or a side swipe 
and it's like, oh my goodness, I'm back playing cardboards on graph paper again. <laughs> prepare to play cardboards. That would be much worse. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's the point, isn't it? Yeah. With some of these things, you'd much rather get your your, your dinky toys out and play it as a skirmish game. Gaslands is a brilliant vehicle combat game, mm-hmm. and and all that is is an, a slightly. It's not even expanded. It's just a kindly refreshed kind of role trad role playing game vehicle combat chapter, but it does it a lot slicker. Yeah, you just you just go to that and then drop back into your game when you're finished. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just reminded as well when you're talking about like the hacking rules. I can't remember it's Shadowrun or Cyberpunk, but one of them had a thing where it's like, oh, don't don't worry, like because you know when you hack a girl's into the net or whatever, uh, there's these devices you could buy so everybody else can go along with them, and it's like great. <laughs> they can't. I mean, they can't do anything. They can just watch. <laughs> so now, <laughs> so now you, you've literally got the characters and the players watching the one person do the thing. Like that's yeah. that's twice as bad. So the, and the, it's just breaking the rule again, isn't it? Of like, what do the players do? And if the answer is, well, one player does this for half an hour, everybody else watches, then that's not yeah. the right. You don't want that. That's bad. Yes, that's, that's exactly. So the subsystem subsystem design is, I think, quite often a chance for the game designer to go a little bit bonkers on their own. They <laughs> they, they get to have their own little vanity paragraph of like, oh, I kind of really wanted to get some poker chips involved somehow. <laughs> or my favourite dice is the D12, so I've got to shoehorn that into my D6 dice pool game. Yeah. So, and when you let designers do that, they're going to try stuff out. So, subsystems I think are sometimes a little bit experimental, and um, and they don't always mesh too well. But if you go for the, how can we maximise the experience at the table for everyone? I think a lot of subsystems would look very different. Yeah. And there's yeah, there's definitely a balance between. You kind of want it to be somewhat familiar, regards to the rest of the book that you've got, so it's not completely alien. Mm. You don't want to be building Jenga towers and everything else is rolling really d20s. There's got to be some similarity, but you don't want it to be like shoehorned into the core system so much that you're preventing yourself doing the actual interesting things you want to do. Yeah. Another good example of subsystems. I don't know whether you can think of any of this or not, but I'll come up with a couple for mass battles. Oh yeah. And. There's things like uh, the Pendragon one, I don't know the new one will be like, but certainly the older Pendragon systems had just this tortuous Bean County, just rolling lots of dice, not fun system. I'll, I'll mm. you know, love Greg Stafford and everything, but his mass battle thing was a, an accountancy exercise rather than, you don't know, a scene out of Excalibur, the movie or something like that. Mm. Uh, then you had things like Legend of the Five Rings, I think third edition, which had, you know, like, it had a good idea in terms of, it was quite often about what the players did. You know, the, do, you, do you like find an enemy champion or do you have to defend against X, Y, and Z? And sounded interesting, but the flaw in it was that it didn't actually tell you at the end of it who won the battle, which, which, which <laughs> some might say should have been one of the first things that went on the piece of paper when they were writing the design out. But um, the one I've been playing recently is Savage Worlds, to go back to that. Again, it's got a lot of little subsystems, but that's, that's one where it, it narrows it down in terms of how long it's going to last. And it's just got a couple of extra bits in it. It's got a bit about a morale system, if you need that. It's got a little bit about who wins the round and then what effect that has on the opponents. Or, um, it's, but it's basically functioning around what does everybody else do when the, you know, the general's going to make his big battle roll, but what's everybody else doing that's going to affect the battle? And you can use whatever skill you want and say whatever you want, but you've got to come up with something cool that you'll do to help. And then you make a roll, depending on what you get, you might take some damage, you might lose some power points, you might get fatigued, whatever it is, or you might just uh, perform a really stunning manoeuvre that really helps the battle. Uh, and I think that's a, a really good set, the, the best set I've seen recently, anyway, of, of mass battle rules, where it's all about what other, all the players are doing, and there's, there's still the battle role, which everybody like leans in to see what happens, because that's going to be the important one. Mm. But everybody gets involved, and it has an effect on the battle, and it handles it all quite quickly, and you can get through a battle in, you can make it quite short but you can also make it an hour or two but it's on several rounds and everybody gets to do something every round so you all feel involved and invested in what's going on mm. and with a set of force tokens for each side that kind of go down as injuries happen and casualties and all that kind of stuff you can see how well you're doing and if things are getting desperate or if you're doing quite well and that kind of stuff so it's got a bit of a, a visual representation so um, anything like that you can think of Baz it's it's hard, mate, because I immediately go to, to the one you've just discussed because we've played it, and it's one of the few times where we've played it and it's made sense at the table as well as in the book. Um, I think on the sort of scale that most role-playing games are at, 
mass battles just don't even come up apart mm. from just in the background I mean I'm sure we've all had to go at writing those scenarios where you are playing characters within a mass battle and you you could still you know go on the internet now and search for advice on this and you will find you will find quite hackneyed advice now about making it just about the thing that your individual character does and have the battle raging behind you as a backdrop mm. it's almost like a chase scene in a yeah. way because yeah. the environment is moving around you but what you do is the thing that matters I've written I've written those scenarios There's, it's on drive through now get yourself rank and vile which was all about playing monstrous legions in 5e and I I wrote some cool cool encounters and, and a nice scenario around that idea but you soon end up in a commando situation because hmm. the games don't really don't really get behind the idea of a mass battle because I think I think everybody just kind of shrugs at each other and goes this is too hard <laughs> <laughs> but because the one game that I can think of that isn't Savage Worlds and I don't exactly think it's a brilliant advert for it is Burning Empires oh, wow. which is I know right so hmm. One of the games that span off of the Burning Wheel, which was a game from 20 years ago now, probably. And Burning Wheel still absolutely has its fans. It's a fascinating game. And, it, and if you're in any way interested in systems at all, it's well worth a look because there's a game with some subsystems. Three mm. different types of experience point system, if I remember <laughs> rightly. Um, but that had, that had a sequence or a system for battles which you could scale up from skirmish up to a lot bigger than that and Burning Empires was based on some science fiction graphic novels which I'd never read but I really tried with the with the game book hmm. and that smacked of 40k yeah. with some of, the, some of the roles it had for it I never got it to the table it, it, it looked good it promised a lot it was too unwieldy and I think that's often the case mate I, I, I'm going to say that Savage is probably the only game I could think of that's got near doing it right yeah yeah, and I, I think it. I might be repeating myself. I think it, it hits those beats that all the players are involved. You've got clear stakes and complications can come up, and if, if you've got those elements, uh, and you can you get a feeling of something happening. And we we give this advice all the time about role playing games, and I still see it occasionally at conventions when I'm, I'm in games or whatever, and the GM won't tell you what happens or doesn't give you the full report back after you said you've done something, and you just feel like divorced from the world. So it's not just subsystem advice. It's kind of like all role playing advice but yeah as GMs we definitely recommend that you you tell people what's going on and that needs to happen so that's that's the problem I think with you describing there the, the, the battle raging behind you you don't feel like you're affecting it mm. uh, and, and nothing seems to change depending on what you do so you can't get a feel then of what's happening or that you're having an impact and that's all we want from role playing games I think isn't it is that we want to do stuff or say stuff and then things happen and we can then react to those and do other things and we keep it's this constantly evolving story where we're involved and we have options and then we pick options and things different things will happen depending on what we do yes so player agency is is a really big priority for me personally and i'm sure it's for most people really who wants to sit there and do nothing um so player agency is a big deal consequences a big deal it's all part of the same thing isn't it with great power comes great responsibility so if you've got agency you want things to happen and there want there to be results from that as soon as you start looking at subsystems in some cases it's to give a player even more agency so now you know you can brew the potions and you can build a lab to make it happen and it's all about you 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 but in other cases like those kind of bigger subsystems like chase rules if you're the passenger in the car or like mass battles um, where you know you're not the standard bearer, it kind of takes away the agency mm. and replaces it with some kind of extra mechanical doodad that actually removes it. Yeah. So there's probably something very there's probably something in that you know, but it but it always takes away from the party play. All yeah. of those subsystems tend to take away from the party play. Whether that's one combatant in your D and D party attempting a grapple, they're immediately using a different rule system <laughs> to everybody else. Yeah, so, you know, it's it's snapped you out of it, hasn't it? Yeah, and that's the trouble with subsystems is clearly they have to be separate from the main rules, otherwise they're not subsystems. But if they're too separate, they're divisive, and that's never a good thing at the table. Yeah, it's the same with the hacking thing and all the stuff we've mentioned. Is that if you're gonna have a subsystem, like everybody needs to be involved in it. Mm. You can't be using different things that just one or two people do because that you just get dissonance then between yeah. the different people at the table. An interesting one we've touched on it, uh, earlier was uh, the One Ring, because mm. arguably that's three different subsystems. 
you still roll a d12 and some d6s for whatever you're doing but if it's a social encounter now called councils i believe or a journey or a fight they're actually quite different things and each one of them's like its own little mini game almost but that's an interesting one i think because it it does the three, three things three main things that happen in the novels and the other source material and it's the design has obviously made an attempt to go out right these all feel different there's different stuff that happens depending on which stage of the book and or movie that you're in so i need to write something that does that thing really well and create three systems i'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here but can you think of anything else that does that sort of thing where they've kind of gone here's different things that happen in my game so i'm going to write different bits for it i think most of the things i can think of off the top of my head are like we've said before you have like a core book or a core system and then you bolt extra bits on depending what you want to do yeah 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 I mean, yeah, it's. I quite like those games that that have different different agendas. Hmm. I, I, I've always quite liked the idea. I mean, I would say that D and D does it weirdly in a really, really weird way. Okay. In D and D, you're either in a fight or you're not, <laughs> and and they're almost distinctly different games. Yeah. There's there's the game that you play when the initiative's been rolled, and there's the game that you play when it isn't, and it's more freeform. And they are distinctly different. They yeah. have a completely not a completely different set of rules you know you're often rolling a d20 but you've got a skill system and it's one of the it's still astonishingly astonishingly a, a skill system that doesn't include fighting skills because they're separate you know you're you're if you want to hit someone with a sword in D&D you don't look down your skill list at all um, and that's bonkers because every other game would put melee weapons into the skill list wouldn't yeah. it and it would and it would do all of that stuff so there's a game with, that's that's almost um, split personality, but I quite like it for that because I love the idea of a game where you've got a character sheet where you almost have to flip it over to the other side for certain aspects of play, and and that would be one of them. You know, you've got all your fighting stuff on one side, then you've got all your other stuff on the other side. Mm. Um, that would be kind of cool. But the game I'm thinking of, which which leans into that most heavily, and it's again it's from that fantasy family because I suppose that's where I'm most comfortable, is Dungeon Crawl Classics, which which does a couple of things. They're, they're both subsystems, but they're both designed to completely emulate the types of games that they want to play. So they're there for a reason. There's a design goal behind these subsystems rather than just simulationist. So you've got two things. You've got, first of all, there's the way that characters are generated and then put through a funnel, which is completely different to any other part of the game at all. You, yeah. you have four characters each they're very low level scrubs that you know they're real peasants turnip farmers you know people who are lucky to have a have maybe a saucepan that might be their entire inventory so you've got four characters each and you play them fast and loose and they will they will be cut down like it's episode 1 of squid game it's it's ridiculous <laughs> and then at the end of that you might have your favorite one is left over and they've they've really developed a personality by then so and then they get full rules applied to them. So there's like a little mini game before the game even starts, which replaces character generation. So that's like a completely different sequence. You'll never return to it in that campaign. Right. It's it's one and done. And then the other one, as a very quick example of something that DCC attempts to do, is it has full rules for spell duels. So the magic system is kind of esoteric and weird at the best of times anyway and there's plenty of randomness and mercurial magic and a whole bunch of little subsystems that only apply to your wizards but what I really like is it doesn't devote pages and pages to this but it's got a very separate system which makes you basically gunslingers for having duels right. but for wizards and it just it, it does that scene out of the, the Disney classic Sword in the Stone where Merlin and Madame Mim are basically turning into loads of different creatures and trying to squash each other and throwing their spells at each other and it's completely outside of the normal rules of the game but it doesn't take forever so this so that, that example and the one i just gave are just two things that dcc are trying to achieve and they're not putting them into the main body of the game they're subsisting in them and then once you've done them you could just push that completely to one side and it won't get in your way at all as you carry on with the game they're like tiny side quests and then you come back again yeah yeah it's interesting isn't it because the dual thing reminds me of and in Deadlands there are dueling rules funnily enough but mm. um, just thinking of like the old western films and stuff like that is there were different rules weren't they when someone's going to yes. have a shootout 
I mean, an hour ago they're having a barroom brawl and it seemed there were no rules at all. But as soon as somebody says they're going to shoot out, then all of a sudden there's different rules and the whole film changes. And yeah. even the bad guys don't get involved if they're not allowed to and that kind of thing. So, mm. yeah, I think there is precedent for that kind of like in these situations. We want to make it special. There's something different happening here. There's a different order that's occurring. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it brings a spotlight on like an aspect of the campaign temporarily. That's a really nice subsystem when you temporarily you could all get involved, or just you know if you need to spectate for a bit, that's fine. If it's someone else has got the spotlight on them, and then it swings back to everybody's involved again, yeah, and that's fine. And as long as you can't hear the crunching of the gears in between those scenes, that's a good session. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Uh, another game I was thinking about that has some system subsystems, but not many, is uh, the two D twenty stuff. So specifically Star uh-huh. Trek Adventures. The only subsystem I could think of, at first I thought there weren't any, is what I was going to say, but like spaceship battles have a different system than most normal stuff, which mm. makes sense. Of course they would. Uh, and I know that some people do struggle with it. I've heard this and, and seen it on Twitter, but uh, it's not that odd. It really isn't when you play it out. But the majority of the game has a sort of skill challenges thing if you want to do that, or you can just make simple mm. skill rolls. And due to the nature of how your uh, abilities and, and sort of traits and stuff are all laid out for the game you can kind of mix and match a lot of stuff and cover a lot of ground with that so unless you're trying to like you know have a spaceship off anything else you're doing whether it's a negotiation or a wrestling match or whatever it might be can follow the same set of rules and that's I think that's the other approach isn't it is like rather than have lots of subsystems you make your core system flexible enough that it can do lots of things so you don't worry too much about having an exhaustive list of skills and whether you put fighting on there or not whether that's a separate thing but you have like approaches if you really boil it down you've got something like Fate Accelerated where you just have seven approaches and you pick one and describe what you're doing is it flashy or is it whatever but there is a middle ground so there's a bit more crunch with the 2D20 and Star Trek Adventures is kind of like to the lighter end of that system I think Conan overcooks it too much but yeah that's one option If if you're not sure about subsystems is pick games that allow you to do lots of things like Fate for example or other games of that nature where you don't need you can do a lot with what the core gives you and it it covers a lot of different aspects yeah I I would also suggest take a look at Powered by the Apocalypse games Hmm. for a game with a very very solid central idea of how to adjudicate stuff in the game and when you've really got your head around it, you can almost improvise a subsystem in the moment at the table by using moves with a capital M uh, to generate some effects that you want to have. Because it, it certainly can't cover everything with the basic moves in the game, but it covers a lot. But there's genuine bona fide proper guidance in the book for making what they call custom moves. And they can also genuinely be improvised at the time. So, for example, and I'm and off to completely off the top of my head, so this may even be in one of the books anyway, but if you're trying to emulate some kind of D&D situation where you find a magic dagger in a treasure hoard and you want to find out what it does, there you could, you could literally construct a move in the game for a subsystem for how do you identify a magic item's properties. And it really wouldn't be too tricky to do, and it would have really good fidelity with the rest of the game at all. It wouldn't feel jarring or anything else like that, and you could, as a table, players could be involved in this as well. You could custom build that move. You may never use it again, or it may just become part of the lore of your game and it may set a precedent. And you just stick it in your GM's binder and then everybody knows how that works from then on. And that's been generated for you by the procedures within it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, PBTA has got a lot going for it, but that's one of those things you don't see mentioned enough, I think. And those custom moves really can bring something completely to life at your table. It'd be unique to you. Yeah, it's an interesting thing is PBTA, isn't it, as well? Because although the core mechanic, again, stays the same, you're all 2d6, and whether you get mm. 6 or less, 7 to 9, or 10 plus, gives you different outcomes. Arguably, like, all the different playbooks and stuff are different subsystems, because yeah. different playbooks have different custom moves that only they can do. Yeah. And yeah. that, in a way, sort of makes it... Obviously, there's lots of subsystems, but there's, I think the familiarity of the mechanic and the structure of how you build one is so simple and easy to understand and, and easy to do at the table that it makes it possible to, as you say, create lots of custom moves or have lots of different ones. But they sit within the same framework, so they're understandable. Yeah. Yeah, mm. clever game. 
Yeah, we should talk to Vincent Meg again. That's that's a reminder for me. <laughs> cool. Well, we're about that time. That's 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 about an hour done. Blimey. On subsystems, a small part of the game that turns out is a big part of the game. Yeah, yeah. not even real <laughs> systems, just the subsystems. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till we get started on Corsair. Oh, my word. So, uh, yes, listeners out there, if you've got any uh, favourite bolt-on modular subsystems, whatever you want to call them, extra bits and pieces, things we've forgotten, not mentioned, esoteric ones that perhaps other people haven't heard of and you want us to get the word out, do hit us up on social media. At the underscore smart underscore party and do most of the official announcements. There's at Bass Stevens for my co host over there. We should also mention at this point, thanks very much to our loyal patrons. It is thanks to you, people who throw us a few shekels every month, that uh, we can carry on doing this stuff. We keep the internet man at bay. We have a trip down to Dragon Meet or something like that. There'll be a recorded session of the seminar either out now or imminently. So that's a bonus episode for you and, and helped by patrons and supporters. And thanks to just all our listeners who like like and share and retweet and, and just tell other people about the podcast because that's all very helpful and keeps us motivated to keep on saying stuff to you. Fairly do's, guys. Absolutely echo every word you've said. Thanks ever so much for feedback. We love to see it, love to interact with, with you guys in the smart community as well. So if you have anything you want us to cover at all in the future, do let us know. This uh, this this topic for this week was in part sponsored by Dirk the Dice, who's never afraid of letting us know what he likes about our about our podcast, and we find that really really helpful when people suggest topics for us as well. Um, there's not much we can't bang on about, so you know test us on that one if you want. You pick the subject, you'll get a podcast about it. Thanks very much, guys. See you next time. Mm-hmm.